Hear the word of the Lord from Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, through chapter 7, verse 1. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with a sword every living thing in it. 
men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced the solemn oath, Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. Um, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I hate having to preach another sermon in this fashion, in this way. I hate the idea of preaching to an iPad. I mean, honestly, I just, I don't like it. This is not my favorite method of preaching. I'd much rather be preaching to you guys as we see each other, as I can respond to you, as I know that my church family is gathered together in holy assembly together. This is tough. It's tough for me. It's been too many weeks. COVID is struggling. The weather is adding, compounding it, and it's just been a tough, tough season. And so we're doing the best we can in this, in the middle of it. And my prayer is no matter how you're experiencing this service today, may God use His Spirit to touch you deeply and reveal more of Himself to you. I believe it. I believe that God can use even this, even all our difficult situations, even the weather circumstances, weather difficulties, and having to preach to an iPad and over the internet, that He can even, in this, bring unity and move in our hearts. So let's come together and pray to God that He moves in our hearts this morning. We're currently in the book of Joshua, and about to talk about probably one of the most famous parts of this book. You may not know much about the book of Joshua, but you do know that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Of Jericho, Jericho, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Well, that was pretty much all you know, right, about, the battle, about Joshua and the battle of Jericho. And the really amazing thing, though, about the battle of Jericho is that Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. I mean, the one thing that you knew for sure, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, you were like, wait a minute, he didn't fight the battle of Jericho? What are you doing to me, Lawrence? But really, technically, there really wasn't even a battle. It's something which is summarized for us in Joshua chapter 6, verse 2. It says, when the Lord says to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. We return to the pages of the New Testament and ask the question, how did the walls of Jericho fall down? The letter to the Hebrews gives us kind of an explicit answer. It says, not by military, but it says, but by faith in the promise of God, Hebrews 11. This morning, I want us to see what God is doing by fighting this battle and how this story fits into the grand narrative of God and ultimately how the second Joshua 
leads the people to their true inheritance that can never be taken away from them. The narrative begins, this whole story begins with Joshua's encounter at the end of chapter 5 with the commander of the Lord's armies. Now imagine with me that you're with the Israelites. They've reached the end of their wanderings and now about to enter the land that was promised. And it looked good. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. But right away there's a problem. Standing guard of sorts over this land is a fortified city, this military fort of Jericho. The land is great, it's kind of this oasis type land, so Jericho kind of stands guard. Walls estimated around four feet thick surround this whole strategic township. It's a stronghold. A fortified wall manned by soldiers is worth thousands of men, and Jericho is fortified and the walls are manned. So no matter how you swing it, it doesn't look that good for Joshua. In 513, it says Joshua is near Jericho, and I'm, I hope I'm not reading too much into this, but we're told that he looked up, which would lead one to think that prior to that, he'd been looking down. He had to look up in order to see this unusual figure that was walking towards him. But notice that, first of all, his eyes were down, cast down, downcast. He had gone out, maybe, no doubt, as a military commander would do, to kind of survey these scenes, check out the fortified city. He sent out the spies. And maybe that scene had left him discouraged. Although he had considerable military experience as a leader, he's not used to, to, to holding siege warfare. He wasn't used to attacking fortified cities. And chapter 6, 1 tells us that Jericho was a locked and barred city. So maybe he wondered, how on earth is this city and its walls going to be breached? How are we going to take this down? God was bringing him into a territory that he had not been in before to, to face things that he had no experience of. And then as he lifts his eyes up, his strange figure appears, apparently armed, appears before him. And Josiah goes up to him, Joshua goes up to him and says, are you for us or are you against us? In other words, are you asking, are you a friend or are you foe? And the man who stayed with sword in his hand says, neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And if there's any real battle of Jericho that Joshua fought, it was here. The real obstacle was not the walls of Jericho, but the will of Joshua to be the servant of the Lord of hosts. For Joshua's recognition that as, as a servant of the Lord, he never commands the Lord to his purposes, but moves himself to the Lord's purposes. You see, as the one in charge, Joshua was scared and downcast. But as a servant, Joshua can face any obstacle knowing that his master is greater. We are now to the siege of the walled city of Jericho. Now, Jericho wasn't a very large city, but at the beginning of chapter 6, we were told that the city was tightly shut up. That is both barred and tightly closed off. So here, it's a few slides that I want you to take a look at here that we're going to present onto you on the screen. And we'll see a couple of these slides. One of the slides will show kind of the size from an aerial view of what Jericho looked like. Another one will show the excavation of ruins of Jericho. And in these slides, I want you to get a picture of what this fortified walled city would look like. Not a huge area, but everybody who's on the outskirts, there are people, villages and towns all around the city would all be in, locked up, and tight, sit tight within the city walls. The classic strategy is that to secure, is that you, if you're being besieged and you have safe fortifications, the typical strategy is you bring up supplies and you bring all the people on the outskirts and you come inside a fortified area that you can protect yourselves well. Now, it's tough to attack a fortified city once the gates are closed. One of the things you could do is starve people out. Hopefully, resources will come out, but that could take months to even years. One of the tried ways was to use battering rams on wheels. That's why the gates were usually made in a series of two or three to ensure that maybe one gate was broken. There would be time for um, people to respond and attack before the other ones were broken. 
It could take a great deal of time. It was very clumsy. It was very difficult. To attack a sieged uh, city was, took an incredible amount of resources and a lot of manpower. It often took a much smaller army to defeat much larger armies by having a fortified city. So a typical military strategy for attacking fortified cities was to starve them out or to build siege instruments like batting rams or towers or ladders to attack the walls, which would take an abundance of lives to achieve. Well, God's strategy was a little more um, unorthodox. Yes, they were armed men, but as they went forward, they were, not, they were followed by priests who carried in their hands not swords, but huge trumpets made of ram's horns. Unlike the silver trumpets which were used to summon people to worship, the trumpets used here were the ones used to announce the year of Jubilee throughout the land, to announce the presence of God's kingdom that would bring liberty to the captives. And so the central theme mentioned again and again in this passage is that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, behind which came more armed men, and behind them came more the entire congregation of the people. And we're supposed to grasp the significance of this. Because in the book of Exodus, we're given a glimpse of how it was that the people of God moved forward in the wilderness. They had a particular formation uh, with the Ark of God and the tabernacle at its very center. And people, people whose whole focus was centered in the presence and power of God. A recognition that the presence and power of God subdues kingdoms. Now I want you to know in chapter 6, the actual attack is only described in two verses, verses 20 and 21. But the Ark is mentioned 14 times. In other words, it's the very presence of God that they're presenting. It's the presence of God that they're focused on. It's the presence of God that is going forward in battle. So I suppose you might ask, how on the earth did this marching in formation, blowing of the trumpets, lead to the destruction of a city? The author of this text has no desire, seems to even care less of how this happened. It seems his chief concern is to emphasize that God did it by means which to human sight would seem folly. Absolute folly. Oh, instead of st strategic methods of besieging a siege city, of, of tunneling or building siege weapons or equipment. No, they marched and blew the trumpet. It was folly. This is just another example of something God loves to do. He loves to use what the world looks down on and what the world may see as foolish to accomplish his goals. The greatest example of this great principle in Scripture is, is in the great instrument that God has used to destroy Satan and redeem his people, the cross of Jesus Christ. What you have here is in, in cameo and in miniature, an example of what God does again and again in the history of redemption. He plans to build his kingdom by ways that to human wisdom seems like foolishness. But the wisdom of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, and the weakness of the cross is stronger than the strength of men. And here is shown for a moment that the fundamental principle, Paul will say, we are able to pull down strongholds in this world because our weapons are mighty through God. And what are they? Our simple testimony of imperfect people being loved by an amazing God. Folly again. Our folly, His glory. And after the fall of Jericho, we see this fulfillment of a promise given to Rahab, her and her family's salvation. How is Rahab delivered? Now we need to read this narrative carefully because we are told on at least two occasions that Rahab was spared because she hid the men whom Joshua had sent as spies to the city of Jericho. Now you need to understand that statement in light of this whole narrative. The author is not telling us that Rahab married this salvation. No, what he's really saying to us, as James actually later in the New Testament explains, is that Rahab demonstrated her faith in the amazing promise these spies had brought to her. She demonstrated her faith by hiding these spies. It was the evidence that she was prepared to risk her life for the promise God had given to her.
So the marvelous story, chapter 2, of the way in which she received the spies, now chapter 6 of how she was delivered. And in verse 23, she's brought out with her family. And because they were ceremonially unclean, they were put at, first of all, in a place outside the camp of Israel. But later in verse 25, they were brought back from the outside of the camp to the inside of the camp. She lives among the Israelites. She's one of them. This story shows an incredible way that the blessings for the people of God is not limited to ethnicity or nationality. It is given through faith in God. Rahab herself stated in chapter 2 that she heard what the Lord has done. Her faith led to her salvation. This is in direct contrast to Achan, who is extensively talked about in chapter 7. Achan was an Israelite. He saw the people of God, but his lack of faith evidenced by disobeying God led to his destruction. It is no accident these stories occur right next to each other. Achan, an Israelite, was condemned for his lack of faith and disobedience. Rahab, a Canaanite, was saved for her faith and her obedience. Now, in the final part of this narrative regarding the total destruction of the city of Jericho, this may be one of the most difficult passages of Scripture that we come to. Really, this passage and a few of the similar passages following in this book of Judges are just really hard to understand, hard to grasp, hard to sit with. There's something almost appalling about what happens here. You see, after the walls came down and Rahab was saved, the whole city was put to the sword. But the Bible goes on to say everyone, including animals, are put to the sword. Only the gold and the silver was taken out for the treasury of the Lord. And this is hard to read and even harder to think about for an extended amount of time. The pastors are going to discuss in length this in our next podcast coming up. We will talk about Jericho and the future conquest of the land. We'll talk about ban and destruction and judgment and all of that. We'll also have some articles on the realm for you to read to help you kind of process and think about this. It will just take up way too much time to dive into all the nuance of these conversations and this topic of the scholarly work that's necessary to kind of truly get this in the narrative. But I do want to share a few thoughts this morning, three in particular, about this concept and how difficult this is. Number one, God is enacting his right and role as ultimate judge. The people of Jericho, as well as other Canaanite tribes, have long been known for their heinous ways. They practice child sacrifice and all manners of sexual depravity, buying and selling of human flesh, and so much more. This was seen in the other parts of the Pentateuch. God didn't judge them in full earlier, but chose this time and this moment to enact his justice. Only God can choose whom his judgments come to and when. He has that right. He may often delay judgment in many cases, but it is his right to do so. So only God can fully judge. Only God can choose his time and moment of judging. And it's not up to us to say, is it fair when and how you choose to judge at what moment? When ultimately he will judge. But he is the only one who has the right to judge fully and in his own timing. God is the ultimate judge. Two, God is giving land that was promised to Abraham back to his people. This isn't conquest. This is land that was originally Abraham's that was promised to them before they entered slavery to Egypt. If you take a look at the side here, you see the journey of Abraham in the slide. Where he ended up going, where the promised land is, and where the, this, this takeover of Canaan begins and establishes where the tribes of Israel are. This is a claiming of the land. This is land that was always meant for the Israelites. They're reclaiming the land that was promised to them and given to them. And this is not a, there's no empires or kingdoms in place here. These are people in wandering tribes and city-states that are staying in land that is not rightfully theirs. 
And number three, God opened up a provision for Jericho and others to repent and open themselves up to him. There was a commandment in Deuteronomy that if the city opened up its gates and pled for mercy, then they would receive mercy. If Jericho only opened up its gates and pled for mercy, they would have received it. But this is shown that they didn't. Verse Chapter 6, verse 1, very explicit in how it said that they intentionally shut themselves in, banned, and uh, shuttered and guarded themselves off. They could have pled for them. They knew what was happening. Rahab heard and knew. This is shown later in conquest when each place the Israelites would go, they would send word ahead of them, giving the people their opportunity to leave or to receive judgment. Ultimately, we see this played out to all peoples in Revelation. We see that those who chose not to acknowledge God will receive his righteous judgment. The seven trumpets in Revelation is throwing people back to this time in Jericho. We have the choice to be like Rahab or to be like Achan. The choice is before us. Do we repent and believe or do we not? The battle of Jericho was fought, was a battle that was fought not by Joshua, but by the Lord our God, who's the righteous judge of all. My people, please get this. Sometimes it seems like living for God is daunting. It seems like life, to live life like we're called to live it is overwhelming. The wall seems so high, the city so fortified. My beloved people, God uses weak people like us to keep his promises and do amazing things. He's taking his land, he's expanding his kingdom, he's doing it with something that seems like folly. He's using imperfect sinners like us who are saved by a king who became a lamb and died upon a cross to be part of a ransomed people who are conquering by dying and advancing by sacrificing and winning by losing. Folly. Yet this folly, this beautiful folly is the hope of the world and the glory of our God. I want you to think about this real quick. Think about Jericho. As it was destroyed, it was said if it was built again, it would be cursed. Or cursed is the one who rebuilt it. Well, King Ahab, who is cursed, rebuilt it. And in Jesus' time, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was a major trade route. It was a major road that occurred. They were close to each other. And it's at that very spot, that road, that the Good Samaritan story takes place. One of the most profound shaping stories of what the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus looks like takes place on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jericho is where blind Bartimaeus gets healed. You see, the forsaken city plays a role in Jesus' life and message. Just like the Canaanite woman is redeemed and then used mightily, the judged city also receives salvation, if you will, as it sees Bartimaeus being saved and being used in the gospel message. None of us, none of you are too far away from God. Not even the Canaanite, and definitely not you. Repent. Choose to believe in Jesus and you will be known, loved, and called to purpose. God has a story, has a history, has a pattern of using the folly of the world, the forgotten things, the broken things of this world, and redeeming it, making it new. And that is exactly what he's doing. And as you face the walled cities before you, it is his presence, his power that fights the battles. So be confident Proclaim the year of Jubilee, blessing to the land, because God is with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. God, that you did. That you are the mighty warrior. It is your presence that goes forth. 
God, we thank you that in this huge narrative that you've weaving and you've brought together, God, that we see our role in it now, that we are the ones who are broken and the ones who are forsaken. We are the folly of this world, but you in your great love has called us to something so different that you call us to your glory, to be instruments of redemption and renewal. And as you judge and as you break, you make new. So God, use us to make new in this world. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.